does inspiration die with the person who inspired you? everyone and welcome to season four episode 37 of the real spies real lives podcast this is where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies i'm your host espionage author p.a duncan i hate to start the podcast on a downer but I have to pay homage to someone who in a unique way contributed to the mystique of and the fascination with espionage. Indeed, he was responsible for my fascination with espionage and blonde men. I'm speaking, of course, of Scottish-born actor David McCallum, who passed away this past Monday not long after his 90th birthday. The last couple of months have done a lot to remind me of my age. With the demise of several pop culture icons who were part of my teenage and young adult years, Sinead O'Connor, Jimmy Buffett. The worst for me is David McCallum. Or as I always thought of him, Ilya Kuryakin. Yes, I know that he played Dr. Donald Ducky Mallard decades longer than he did Ilya Kuryakin, but he'll always be Ilya to me. So who was Ilya Kuryakin? He was a man from uncle an agent of the United Network Command for Law and its Enforcement, uncle. He was Russian and paired with an American, Napoleon Solo, in the midst of the Cold War. The producers of The Man from Uncle deliberately left Ilya's backstory vague, he was originally supposed to be a limited secondary character to Robert Vaughn's solo. We do, however, get a hint of who he might have been. In the Soviet Navy, per the uniform he wore in one episode. Perhaps an ardent communist, based on some lines of dialogue about the proletariat. He was serious and focused on his work, based on the occasional near eye rolls he showed for his partner's womanizing. Indeed, Ilya quite often was the one being chased, shot at, captured, or tortured, while Solo was seducing a woman. I may be using some hyperbole there. The Man from Uncle was created to glom onto the James Bond wave of popularity. Indeed, the concept and the name Solo were contributed by Ian Fleming, a friend of one of the show's producers. Ilya was an international man of mystery, 
long before anyone ever heard of Austin Powers. And that, of course, made Elia more than attractive to a generation of teenage girls, myself among them. Elia was the stuff fantasies are made of, and, yes, teenage girls have fantasies. Boy, do they. In 1964, when The Man from Uncle premiered, we were two years beyond the Cuban Missile Crisis, a year beyond the assassination of a U.S. president some believe was killed by the Soviet Union. The pairing of an American and a Russian to do good and fight bad guys was unusual enough that some parents worried about children being exposed to a Soviet. No one ever came out and said Ilya was a Soviet, but, given the time, he had to be. No one ever came out and declared him to be a defector, either, even if the whole uncle versus thrush battle was obvious as an allegory for the West versus the Soviet Union. McCallum's acting was sublime. Whether Elia was impersonating a Mongol warlord, or the son of a Nazi general, or a college student at an anti-war demonstration, McCallum brought gravitas to even the episodes that devolved into farce. I wondered what was behind that serious, handsome secret agent. As a result, I got into trouble for writing uncle fan fiction in English class. Of course, that was too long ago for the term fan fiction, but hindsight showed me that's what it was. My English teacher told me to keep writing, but to stick to the assignments she gave in class. And she also suggested I look into Russian history. I did both of those things. I concentrated in Russian history in college, and in the early 1990s when I figured out I really wanted to write fiction, and spy fiction in particular, I remembered Ilya Kuryakin. And yes, I spell his name the Russian way, with one L. Ilya was the inspiration for my male protagonist, Alexei Bukharin, who is Russian. Actually, I'm Ukrainian. And a defector from the Soviet Union who joins a super-secret intelligence organization called the United Nations Intelligence Directorate. That's the limit of the connection because I've built far more backstory into Alexei than Ilya could have dreamed of. Oh, there's one more slight connection. McCallum was the son of classical musicians who groomed him to be a musician as well. I have one of his albums. Of course I do. In several Uncle episodes, Elia is seen playing a musical instrument. But again, McCallum was a musician. He was really playing. In interviews, McCallum has said that all he knew about Elia was he had a small apartment and jazz records under his bed. Under his bed, because 
In the 1960s in the Soviet Union, jazz was nekolturni, or unacceptable. So I made Alexei a piano prodigy in the Soviet Union before he defected. And he buys a piano for his small apartment right after his defection. So what does a writer do after her inspiration passes on? And I'm going to get choked up because I have every time I've rehearsed this. I keep on writing. Alexei isn't Ilya, and Ilya isn't dead, even if the actor who portrayed him so well and so iconically is. As long as there is television and streaming and DVDs, Ilya goes on and on. Inspiration continues and will until I write my last word. Thank you, Ilya, but most of all, thank you, David. P.S. David, I long ago forgave you for marrying a woman from my hometown who wasn't me. Now, on a happier note, I'm continuing to watch Spy Ops, the Netflix series about actual counterintelligence operations in the past. The most recent episode I watched wasn't about an actual operation, unless you believe one of the several conspiracy theories about the event. Episode four is The Plot to Kill the Pope. This deals with the May 1981 attempted assassination of Pope John Paul II by a Turkish criminal named Mehmet Aliagka. John Paul II regularly rode around St. Peter's Square at the Vatican to greet people who had come to see him. And Ajka had studied this and picked this as the place to kill the Pope. He thought he'd be able to drop the gun and escape in the confusion. Now, why he wanted to kill John Paul II is still not clear. Ajka himself has given a different story almost every time he's been interviewed, different stories even from what he said at his trial and said at the trial of a man who was supposed to be his accomplice, and he even changed his story for this episode. He was interviewed for this episode. Was he working for a Turkish fascist group? Was he coerced into doing it by the KGB or the Bulgarian secret police or someone in the Vatican itself? The episode explores the various conspiracy theories. And after seeing this episode and hearing all these theories, I just decided this was the Vatican's version of the Kennedy assassination. One theory sounds plausible until you learn about the next theory, and so on and so on. So the episode doesn't declare a winning conspiracy, but I personally, this is only my opinion, think Ajka was much like Lee Harvey Oswald an unexciting, mediocre little man who wanted attention. Unlike Oswald, however, Ajka served his sentence and can continue to contribute to his moment of infamy through all these interviews and programs being made about him. As an aside, John Paul II, after his recovery, 
met Ajka in prison and forgave him, something which Ajka either admires to this day or uses to keep his name in the press. Watch the episode and you be the judge. Spy Ops on Netflix. I haven't been disappointed in an episode yet. All right. Now I'm going to talk briefly about my new book, which is really kind of, it's not a book, it's a novelette slash novella. It kind of falls right at the edge of the highest word count for a novelette and the lowest word count for a novella. Prologue to Rendition. And that's the reader magnet for my series, Meeting the Enemy. And the reader magnet is available for pre-order now. Book four of my 9-11 series, which is also the conclusion of the series, is titled Rendition. Hence, the reader magnet's title, Prologue to Rendition. I gave a lot of details in last week's podcast about the book, but I'll go over that again in condensed version. Prologue to Rendition takes place in 1977, when Mai Fisher has just finished her training and evaluation to become a directorate operative. Nigel Hume, the man in charge of the directorate, is a bit of a chauvinist pig slash misogynist who wants Mai to fail. So he orders Alexei to come up with a test severe enough to make her break under torture. Alexei, of course, has trained Mai and knows she won't break. But he also knows he has to do this or Nigel Hume won't allow her to be an operative. In the upcoming novel, Rendition, which takes place in 2003, Mai is put in charge of a CIA black site in her undercover role as CIA Chief of Staff Catherine Burke. And the Arbust administration is unhappy that she's not using those famous or infamous enhanced interrogation techniques on a high-value prisoner. Prologue to Rendition explains why she doesn't. As I mentioned last week, it was not an easy story to write. Indeed, the concept came to me in the early 1990s. And I only recently took it off the shelf, as it were, in the mid-2000s, put it away again, brought it out within the last couple of years. When I started the rough draft of Meeting the Enemy, that didn't make it any easier to write, considering it's just now coming out. This is one of my, one of my books that you know, it was a couple of decades in the making, and this is essentially a long short story, but it's a difficult subject matter. Some stories are like that. You know what you want to say, you know what the story's about, but the subject matter is so difficult. You have to be in a place in your head where the subject matter doesn't drag you down with it. So, yes, it took me nearly 20 years to finish this story. 
And when I began it, I didn't know there was going to be a 9-11 and extraordinary rendition and black sites and so forth. Unfortunately, that did happen, and it kind of made the story. So Prologue to Rendition contains a violent kidnapping, depictions of torture, threat of rape, fear of rape, and gun violence. I put a trigger warning right up front in the author's note. Now, I understand and accept this story may not be for everyone, especially if you're triggered by what I just mentioned. I know that may sound like I'm discouraging people from buying my book. I'm not really. I do want my historical fiction to reflect the truths that make us uncomfortable. But I also don't want to mess up anyone's mental health. So be warned, if it doesn't sound like it's for you, consider not buying it rather than buying it than giving it a one-star review if it upsets you. And now it's commercial time. All the books in Self-Inflicted Wounds, Welcome to Belgrade, Dangerous Truths, and Justice for All, are still on sale through Sunday, September 30th, as is that series reader magnet, Dateline Belgrade. I'll put the link to Self-Inflicted Wounds in the description of this episode, along with the pre-order link for Prologue to Rendition. And in October, one of my newer standalone novels will be on sale. And I'm actually putting the ebook the paperback, and the hardcover on sale all month long. That novel is Love Death. It's an Alexei-centric story that takes place toward the end of the Cold War. And commercial over. Maybe that's a record for the shortest commercial I've done. I'm going to do a brief reading from Prologue to Rendition. Nothing triggering at this point, I hope. Prologue to Rendition is also when my meets Edwin Terrell Jr. for the first time. See, I still come up with ways to bring him back from the dead. It's not a pleasant meeting because, well, I'm not going to tell you. You need to read the book to find out. She doesn't know who he is at first but she loathes him. And because this story takes place in the late 1970s, I apologize for the accuracy of the sexist language and attitudes. Prologue to Rendition, Chapter 1, The Rough Stuff. 1977, Washington, D.C. Blue's Bayou was close to empty on a weekday afternoon. Once inside the popular nightclub, time was difficult to measure. Behind its darkened windows, outside could be day or night. Whatever time it was in the nation's capital, someone always played a piano and a singer always sang. The singer this afternoon was a transvestite, or was the term drag queen, 
Alexei Bukharin wasn't sure, but he knew this singer was something more than a man dressed as a woman. He shoved his discomfort aside as he approached a table in a far corner of the club. Edwin Terrell Jr. had already seated himself and was tipped back in his chair, eyes closed as he listened to the music and the singer's dulcet tones. A bottle of scotch and two glasses were on the table, Terrell's glass holding two fingers of the liquid. Terrell's close-cropped hair was salt and pepper. Lines marked the corners of his eyes, and his arms lay folded on his broad chest. Alexei had met Terrell in a similar dive in Paris in 1974. The singer there was definitely all-woman, and Alexei smiled at the memory of their interlude after Terrell had agreed to kidnap Alexei's son from the Soviet Union. When Alexei reached the table, Terrell settled all four of the chair's legs on the floor and opened his eyes. He picked up the scotch bottle and poured a generous amount into the second glass. Alexei sat across from Terrell but angled his chair so his back was to the wall and he could see the entrance. Braced on his elbows now on the table, Terrell closed his eyes again, his head swaying to the rhythm of the song. Alexei took his glass and sipped. Scotch wasn't his drink. Terrell knew that. Simply, it didn't matter to him. How's that world domination thing going, comrade? Terrell asked, eyes still closed. Well, we're still working on burying you. Fuck, what a voice she has, Terrell said. You're a musician. You gotta appreciate that. Yes, uh, almost perfect pitch, I'd say. And she's hot to look at. Alexei smiled and drank scotch. Take a closer look, Snake, he said, using Terrell's nickname. After a stint of R&R &R in Bangkok when Terrell was stationed in Vietnam, he'd awakened in a brothel with a tattoo on his bicep he didn't remember getting. A naked woman with a pair of dice for her breasts, the dice rolled to snake eyes. Hence his nickname. Terrell opened his eyes and peered at the singer. The singer caught him looking and blew him a kiss. Well, shit, Terrell said. I knew it had to be too good to be true. It's a strange new world, Iceman, that has such creatures in it. Women are burning their bras and dressing like men. Men are dressing like women and singing like Billie Holiday. Terrell drained his glass and refilled it. How's Slick doing? he asked. Alexei's mouth turned down at the mention of his partner, former partner, since Alexei had carried him badly wounded out of Albania. Slick was Nelson's nickname, given to him by Terrell because Nelson could have any woman on her back with her skirt hiked within five minutes of meeting her, and he had an uncanny ability to extricate himself from danger until that last mission. Rehab is going well, Alexei said. He can walk again with canes, adjusting remarkably well to management. Terrell nodded, saying, I always thought he'd be a good spymaster. 
That was a righteous thing you did, carrying him out of Albania. I'd have thought your commie ass would have felt right at home. I defected more than a decade ago, so I was as much saving my life as his. Are you going solo, or is a new partner on tap? A new partner. One I've trained and fresh from operational evaluation at the farm. The farm was a CIA training facility in rural Virginia and used on occasion by the directorate. Ah, oh, I see why you asked me here, Terrell said. He needs a test. She needs a test. Terrell's grin split his face. They gave you a girl for a partner? As you know, women have always been spies. Do I know her? I don't know. The late John Stone from our London station, his ward. Terrell sobered again. Ah, Stone was a good man. That was a big loss. Still, he chose the time and place. Not all of us will have that opportunity. His kid? Can't be. She's what? 16? 17? 19. Alexei removed a thick envelope from his inside jacket pocket and handed it to Terrell. An abbreviated dossier and pictures, Alexei said. Terrell opened the envelope and flipped through the dozen or so photos there. Nice tits, he commented. How is she in bed? Stimulating. Terrell looked at him. I was joking, but hell, good for you. Nineteen? I'd be hard-pressed to keep up with that. My director thought it would improve our partnership if I seduced her, which I did, but she made me work for it. Oh, but sex was more than hot then. It was. Nigel Hume hoped it would make her pliant and submissive. Damn, I always thought of him as somewhat of a prude. He's got something against her family. He and her father were in the SOE during the Great Patriotic War. Something happened between them, but the records are still classified. No one seems to know what. Though her father's been dead for nearly 15 years, Nigel continues to take out his issue with her father on her. Well, how so? I have to submit weekly reports on her progress. Any male trainee gets an incoming report, a midway report, and a final report. And he's put restrictions on her movements and ordered direct surveillance. So, tell me the truth. Did fucking her make her pliant and submissive? Not in her nature to be either. She takes an enthusiastic approach to sex, and I'm not complaining. Nigel, however, thinks women can be controlled with sex, since I've bedded her, his word. She's bound to do exactly what I tell her to do. Will she? No. She will keep me on my toes in more ways than one. That good. I mean, as an operative, but if you want to give up some juicy details. Terrell shrugged and drank scotch. Unbelievably good as an operative. The other? She doesn't want me to kiss and tell. Did Stone recruit her? Alexei nodded and said he had her working dead drops and eavesdropping at society parties initially, then off to British Army and the RAF 
per her father's position in the aristocracy or some such. He was an earl, I believe. Her cover here in the U.S. is as a graduate student. Terrell scanned the pages of the brief dossier. Do you take her cherry? No. That was a rock star when she was 15. She told him she was 18, but he didn't question it much. They generally don't. Terrell refolded the sheets of paper and returned them and the photos to the envelope, which he tucked away in his jacket. What's the test for if she passed the farm? Nigel thinks she'll break under torture because she's a woman. Though there was never any evidence to the effect, he believes her parents talked before they died. Did they? Not that Nelson has been able to determine, but there was never any sort of negotiation for a spy swap. Indeed, the British Embassy wasn't notified of their deaths until several weeks after their execution. At the time, no missions planned or in progress were compromised, and, of course, all codes and ciphers were changed. The usual routine, but it doesn't appear that they broke, except in Nigel's imagination. As I said, he has an active dislike of her, and he thinks she'll break. I want to prove to him she won't. So is this test his idea or yours? His. But if it will convince him of her efficacy as an operative, I'll go along. Terrell stared at his glass for a while. The singer had moved on to her next song, something sultry and suggestive. How far do you want this test to go? Terrell asked Alexei. As far as it needs to, but no rape. Terrell raised an eyebrow in surprise. You know as well as I do, rape is a given if she's captured. I am, and she is too. Terrell smiled at him. I see. You don't want me tapping your well. Oh, buzz you, boy. You don't have to be crude about it. Well, now who's being a prude? For it to be a true test, I need to hold the possibility of rape over her. The possibility is fine, but not the other. You're being... Oh, what's the word they're using now? Oh, yeah, sexist. You think she can't handle it. Perhaps I am being sexist, but the point is to convince the misogynist leading my spy shop that she won't break. We'll have to record it then. Audio and video. Give him a visual report. Agreed? Yes. When do you want this to happen? Early Friday morning, she's going to New York for some shopping. She's got more money than you and I both will ever see, and more clothes than the population of a small country. But she wants more. <laughs> Sounds like a typical girl. Far from it. Sometimes, though, she remembers she's young and rich. You're not going with her. I am not the hold-her-bag-while-she-shops type. She thinks I'll be nowhere near New York, indeed. You and I could head there today and finalize an action plan. I made her give me an itinerary for security reasons. Okay, I got nothing going for the next week or so. I can work it in. Why did you ask for me? I didn't. Nigel did. You'd be an objective third party, he said. Terrell laughed and finished his scotch. 
Ice, when have I ever been objective when a pretty girl is involved? My understanding is that calling a grown woman a girl is chauvinistic. Are you really buying into the women's lib thing or using the right buzzwords to get women? Alexei said nothing. Okay, I think I have my answer. Will she come into JFK or LaGuardia? Alexei shook his head. Westchester, on the private jet charter. There'll be a limo and driver there to pick her up. She thinks she hired them, but the driver will be from UN Security. Okay. Is she good enough to spot me? She's good, but not yet. She almost spotted me once. Shopping, Terrell said, eyes narrowed as he thought. A changing room would be good, but yeah, let's look at the itinerary later and plot something. Am I traveling on the directorate's dime? Alexei checked his watch. We have tickets to LaGuardia on a plane that leaves in three hours. Oh, good. I have time to pack a bag. We'll use the CIA place in Manhattan. It's set up for something like this. I assume you'll observe and feed me info on her when I need it? Yes. Will she be armed? I talked her out of it. Wouldn't want to panic a sales consultant, I told her. Good. You know, this is going to get rough. I know. Does that bother you? No. Before I go on an operation with her, I need to know that she can handle the rough stuff. Terrell nodded. The beef Nigel had with the father, I'll ask a couple of the OSS guys in the agency if they know what it is. You know, you might be able to use it against Nigel if you need to. Not the priority right now, but thank you. I might need to use some persuasive drugs on her or sedate her if she fights back too much. The usual drugs you use for interrogation, yes. No hallucinogens. I want her resolve tested, not her brain fried. Do you have a cut-off time in mind? We go as long as it takes to see if she'll break. And if she breaks... Either headquarters or the London station will get a new analyst, a brilliant one. Terrell grinned. Or I'll recruit her. No, not that. Terrell's eyes narrowed again. Does she mean something to you? She'll be my partner unless she fails your test. That's all. Oh, we could stage a rescue. You know, you rush in and save her from the big bad guy. No. That would offend her feminist sensibilities. I'll explain everything after you're finished with her. Terrell laughed once more, shaking his head. You're a masochistic Russian bastard. She'll cockblock you. Alexei finished his scotch, too, and gave Terrell the grimace that passed for a smile. I'm Ukrainian, actually. If she does that, I'll simply have to seduce her all over again. Poor me. Okay, I'm done now. If you're only familiar with my and Alexei and their relationship from any of my books up to this point, this is very early in that relationship where my and Alexei both were only interested in good sex, nothing more. But yes, 
Alexei is a bit of a hound. So last week, you guys put all four books of Self-Inflicted Wounds, the trilogy plus the reader magnet, in the top 25 of the espionage list on Amazon. Thank you. Thank you. You make the months where I barely sell a book much easier. I hope we get a break in the weather here in the mid-Atlantic really soon. All the clouds and rain certainly put a damper on the opportunities to keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast and Slava Ukraini. <laughs>